here. Good to see you. Good to see everybody. Um, happy Friday. I think it's Friday. It it's is Friday. Friday. That's right. Uh, Greg's Thursday. So Friday is the day after that. And uh, we're happy to be here and happy to have you. We are going to. I'm sorry. We may have a problem here in a minute. Okay. My grandson, my grandson's here, the youngest one. And I normally lock the door when I come in here when they're here to make sure nobody barges into the room and there's a little hand <laughs> going on the doorknob right now. <laughs> so it just stopped. Julie may have corralled him. It just stopped. Okay, I think we're good. Go ahead, man. <laughs> Hard to keep a young man from his grandfather. I mean, yeah. he doesn't want to get to there. Yeah, I'm trying to sit up real tall and wide because if I show you what's behind my back right now, there's a whole bunch of just toys and cars and uh, <laughs> it's spread out all over the place. So I'm trying to, you know, <laughs> stop that from being seen. Anyway. Providence. Uh, <laughs> I think you mentioned it. It's a huge subject, uh, a needed subject, and one that we will um, let you in on a secret before we even get started. We won't exhaust tonight. But we will hopefully introduce it, say some things about it, talk about it, and uh, maybe we'll come back uh, after the break and return to this uh, topic as well. Like so many things in the Bible and in Bible discussions, um, you could have a, a talk for a very long time and be using the same words and not use them the same way and wonder why you're not able to communicate effectively. And so... Um, whether that's ideas that you're using or thinking or talking about or just words that are particular to the subject matter, whatever it is, it's important to um, lay some groundwork, uh, establish some definitions, uh, define some terms and so forth. So I don't know if you want to do that specifically with the word Providence, Jonathan, or just uh, have me get into these thoughts. I had some ideas uh, by way of groundwork as well some things that I think at any rate must be accepted if we're going to understand the subject of providence and study it effectively. Yeah. Um, you know, the, 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 just real quick on the word providence itself, it's, it's, it is a Bible word in some translations. It's just not usually attached to, uh, to God in the translations. The closest I think you'll find to it is uh, Genesis 22, where Abraham says about God, he will provide for himself a ram uh, for the offering. Um, and usually when, when Bible teachers and commentators are talking about providence, they usually mean it in distinction to the, the miraculous works of God. Um, and, and there's some more subdivisions in it than that, but that, that's generally what, what we are talking about. How does God provide, and that's kind of the root word of providence, how does God provide uh, for the world? Because there is a general providence I'm sure we'll talk about. And then specifically, how does he provide for his own people um, without inserting himself in what we would consider to be, what would we perceive as a sign, miracle, wonder, as described by the Bible? That's a very broad characterization of what we're talking about, but that's generally the two divisions that people are talking about when they when they talk about either the uh, talk about the providence of God or the, the works of God being you know supernatural or miraculous, something along those lines. And, and once we accept that the miracles have ceased, we really aren't left with anything else right. uh, but for God to accomplish his plans, purposes, will through a non-miraculous means or through a providential means. 
So I've been in discussions about Providence and sometimes the discussions seem to me to run afoul of things that I believe the Bible already teaches. And it's kind of hard to, to have a conversation about Providence if in the conversation you keep contradicting something that the Bible plainly teaches. And yeah. so that's where my list came from. Like there are some things that I'm convinced we got to accept as true before we delve into a study of providence, because within that study of providence, we can't contradict any of these things. Okay. So number one among that list is there is no new revelation given beyond the 66 books of the Bible. Okay. Uh, First Timothy 3, 16 and 17, or 2 Timothy rather, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, Jude 3. Uh, these passages explain that the revelation of God has been revealed and that it's all sufficient. There is nothing else needed. There is nothing else coming. And so I think though people would readily acknowledge that, I feel like sometimes you get into deep discussions of providence, it's like, wow, that would go beyond the book. And so we can't, there's no new revelation. Uh, that's number one. Number two, without God telling us specifics, we cannot know his mind or his actions. First Corinthians 2, 8 through 11. So sometimes it seems to me, I don't know, you, you could comment if you like, but it seems to me sometimes people are not happy with the expression, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know I don't know. Uh, I can't tell you that God is doing X without revelation from God on what X is. Uh, and so that's number two on my list. Yeah, just real quick here, because if I go too far, I'll derail the discussion on point number two. Um, but I think taking points one and two together are very important. It's it's not the thing I talk about most when I talk about the Bible, because that's usually the concept of transformation versus reformation. That one seems to be stick right right near right near me. The second one is um, the concept of mystical thinking in, in, in Christianity. Most most of Christendom these days relies on some form of mysticism. Because if you believe in some form of depravity, you have to have some kind of mysticism make up for the gap between your ability to understand God and God himself. If you're, if you're, if your spirit is corrupted, you can't fully understand the revelation in the text. And so you're always looking for revelation outside of the text. And that's where people try to say, you know, I let God laid it on my heart. I feel this. What's God trying to teach? That's where all of that creeps in is right there in the gap between essentially what you have point one and point two. And so I think that those first two points are not just critical for discussion of providence. I think those first two points are critical in, in understanding um, every Bible topic as it touches the human, the human existence. Because if you, if you give up either one of those points, you're, you're forever going to be in the realm of the mystical or the subjective and trying to find your answers. And so the concept of providence, it's really, very, really important to know that the revelation is complete. You can understand the revelation and the revelation is sufficient for you, for you to interpret the events of your life. Brings us to number three, which is connected somehow to what you just said. And that is we are free moral agents. 
uh, Genesis 1, 26, 27, I would certainly say, I know you would as well. We are not corrupted. We are free, but we're not corrupt. We are free to make our choices, which is directly connected to number four. Choices that don't involve morality are ours to make freely. Now, let me explain, because you could argue that the choices of morality are ours to make. That's not exactly what I mean. Here's what I mean. God empowers us to make choices. God expects us to make choices. And God exempts us from choosing wrong if he didn't tell us. That's what I mean by choices that don't involve morality. You see, God has explained morality to us. And while you're free to make the choice, you aren't exempted if you make the wrong one. But choices that don't involve morality in those choices, you are not simply free to make them. You are exempt from choosing wrong if God didn't specify right within said choice. Which, let me finish that thought with this. We can always make a new choice if we don't like the way the previous one went. And I just think that also is connected to providence. I know that's a mouthful I could go back over it if you didn't get it, but I, I trust that you did. What say you along those lines? Well, I have a feeling we'll talk about that concept more as we go through this topic. It's going to be really, really hard not to. So I'll, I'll you know, try to be brief here. But that, I mean, you're exactly right, is that I think a lot of people trip over this one because a lot of Christians walk through life with this idea that everything happens for a reason. Everything happens for a purpose. And this may be one of your points coming later, but it's, it's, it's right here in this gap again, because the reason we struggle over, you know, should I turn left or right? Should I buy this car or that car? Should I buy this house or that house? Should I live here or there? Should I work this job or that job? We stumble over that because they are in that sense, amoral choices. No, they're not moral. They're not immoral. They're amoral. There's no moral component about which car dealership you go into. It's just, it's just a, it's just a product. And we, we struggle over those things because we think that everything has happens for a reason. And if I go into the wrong store, if I choose the wrong job, somehow I'm making an immoral choice because I'm violating the plan of God. And so we are free moral agents, as you talked about, with not only the, 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 uh, not only the liberty, but also then the responsibility of, of making choices that are appropriate for our lives. And a lot of those choices have nothing to do directly with the revelation of God that you start with in points one or two. So yeah, absolutely. We're on number five now. And for, for this one, we, we will read a Bible verse. And one of the things that's uh, important, the verse is Ecclesiastes 9-11, in case you want to bring it up. Uh, I was turning there myself. But one of the things that's important in trying to, and we're not there yet, but in trying to understand providence is to appreciate that there are options for our conclusions. Here's what I mean by that. When, when there are a multiple possibility for why something happened, without definite knowledge, there's really no reason to choose one of them as if we are certain that that was the reason. Um, and in life, there are always multiple um explanations or possibilities rather for why something happened this is one of those possibilities 
Solomon says it best. Time and chance, number five, happens to us all. Verse number 11. Again, I saw under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. Let me say this. As you read those words, understand this. Solomon is not saying that this is the case in every instance. Solomon is not saying when he says the race is not to the swift, he doesn't mean that absolutely. Sometimes the fastest runner wins. That's not his point. The battle is not to the strong. No, sometimes the strongest person wins the fight, as you might expect. Not his point. And so all of these things he explains, it's not the case that he means they never happen. He explains them all by the end of the verse. And I saw under the sun, the race is not to the swift, always, nor the battles to the strong, always, nor the bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. The reason is it's not always is because time and chance happens to them all. Well, you and I are sometimes the swift, the strong, the wise, the, the uh, intelligent. Sometimes that's us. And what happens? Time and chance happens to us all. And very often when life happens because of our, our so thought about providence, our thinking about it in such a way that everything, as Jonathan said, happens for a reason and that reason is directly connected to God's actions because that's the way we think no matter what happens in my life, no matter what happens in the world, there is some attachment to God. And Solomon is saying here, but wait, there is another possibility as to why the event happened. Time and chance happens to us all. Yeah, and and to, to Solomon's broader point within the book, which is what profit does a man have for all his labors under the sun? My understanding of this verse is that this is this is a complaint. The race is not to the swift is a complaint because what he wants it to be is that the race is always to the swift. Because if it's always to the swift, then there's a late, there's a profit for my labor under the sun. If I if 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 the riches always come to the intelligent, then I just make myself smart and I succeed. But time and chance happens, and all my all my plans go 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 awry and so on. And you know that that idea that everything happens for a reason, everything has its purpose, and so on, is is essentially built on the same foundation as Solomon's statement here. There that there should be a purpose and a reason to every event. That if I can then just you know deconstruct it. I can figure out where it went wrong or, or something of that nature. Maybe I can assert, ascertain from, from my analysis of the situation where I went wrong or how I displeased God or something like that. And the example that he uses after that, a fish just swimming along, not doing anything wrong, maybe the biggest and, and the strongest and the best fish, and somebody throws a net in, it's outside of his world, it's outside of his perception. There's no way he can prepare for it, no way he can avoid it. The net just falls in and catches him. No fault of his own. And th therein is the great, great problem that you have when you try to discuss a topic like this, because there's, you, you said people don't like the phrase, I don't know. Well, here's the, I don't know of it. You don't know when that might happen. And Solomon's, Solomon's evaluation, the time and chance happens is right. It's not God. It's just life, time and chance happening to everybody. So that is um, connected, I think, to number six. 
which is, I think, another option. It's there in the same book. So sorry about that. If you bring back up chapter one and then we'll look at chapter three. And here is the point. Some things are and always will be. Uh, and as, jo as Solomon opens the book, we'll start there. Go back up Jay, just a little bit to verse number three or so, I think. As he starts the book, Vanity Advantage says, preach all is vanity, verse two. But he begins by telling us, uh, verse number four, a generation goes and a generation comes. The earth remains forever. Sun rises, the sun goes down, hastens to its place where it, where it rises. The wind blows to the south, goes to the north, around and around the winds, circuits and returns. All Solomon is simply expressing the ongoing nature and effects of life. These things always have been, always will be. They're just going to continue. Chapter three, if you'll bring that up, Jay, I don't believe is any different than chapter one. When he gets to chapter three, uh, I am familiar that the mamas and the papas made it a song. Pretty good one, too, if you don't mind me saying. To every turn, thing, turn, 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 there's a season. Well, there is, but I don't think Solomon means here any more than he meant in chapter one. These are things that are just going to be. There's a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, time to pluck up, what's plant, time to kill, time to heal, time to break down, time to build up, time to weep, time to laugh, time to mourn, time to dance, time to cast away stones, time to gather stones together, time to embrace, time to refrain from embrace, time to speak. Now, this is happening to every one of our lives all over the world every single day. That ongoing work of the world in chapter one is happening. And these things are happening. Now, how then could I explain with any specificity, without revelation from God, which one of these at any given time he did? When there are some things that will always be. They always are. They always will be. And I think, again, one more of those different option possibilities that exist in the world as to why a particular thing happened to me. Yeah, and the, and the verses that follow, so I wanted to go ahead and scroll down. Solomon even elaborates on it. It says essentially the same thing. There's the question again. What profit does a man, what gain does he have from all this labor? And then Solomon's point, not takes the time to do all this, but Solomon's point from verse 10 on down is essentially that God God created the world, set it in, set it in its order. And, you know, I, if, if, if I try to stop one of these things up in this list, I'm going to fail. Because there's nothing I can do to overturn the order that's here. I don't. I don't believe he's saying that God has ordained that on Tuesday next week it's going to be right. my time to heal, and then on Wednesday the next week it's going to be my time to mourn and or so on. But these are phases. These are these are part of the existence of, of humanity, and every one of us will go through effectively all of these things during our lives. That's just the nature of our existence, and you can't overturn it. Uh, it actually, it's always going to exactly. And he actually uses that phrase down here, doesn't he? Uh, uh, that which God has created, or that which God, um, yeah, I, I perceive that 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 whatever God does endures forever. This that's just the nature of the world we've been put in, and there's nothing we can do to overturn it. Nor, by the way, is God going to do anything to overturn it. When he says is there, 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 it's, it's you know it's a time. Um, well, it's a, you know there's a time. Um, uh, Pick one, you know. There's well, time to time to warn, time to be die, to die. Again, not not at not um, 
appointing the specific, you know, you're going to die on March 17th of 2038 at 7.28 p.m. No, but it's appointed on a man wants to die after this, the judgment. You can't, you can't overturn that. There's nothing you're going to do to ever overturn that. What God has, the way God has set the world in order is going to exist and he is going to allow it to exist. That's absolutely right. Uh, and that was point number six. Now, if you just joined us, uh, we're talking about providence. This would be um, what was often referred to at Avondale as introduction and, and then the sermon. So we're not there yet, but these are some things. And the reason we have this list, the reason I have this list is because I have found myself uh, 40, 50, 60% into a conversation of providence struggling with these things. And it's, it's, we, we cannot contradict these things in a discussion of providence. We're going from the known to the unknown and, and we have to be, be certain that we know what the Bible has said. And these things are just biblical teaching, uh, that has to be honored before we uh, delve deeply into a discussion of providence, I, at least I have found. I'm up to number seven now, okay. which is providence. Now, this is my estimation. I'm not speaking for Jonathan here. Uh, this is my estimation. Jay can chime in if you'd like. Uh, I think providence belongs to God, not man. Uh, if you would look at Romans 9, Here's what I mean by that. We have phrases in the Bible used to describe, and it was taught to me, though I'm hardly a Greek grammarian by any stretch of the imagination, but I was taught the word of is genitive in nature, and it shows ownership and belonging to the book of John and so forth. And so that was explained to me when we use the phrase church of Christ. And that church belongs to Jesus. It's his. It's It belongs to Jesus. It has an owner and Christ purchased it with his, with his blood, Acts 20, 28, Matthew 16, uh, 18 and 19. That said, when we read Ephesians 6, 10 to 17 in that section of scripture, the Bible says, take with you the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. I would say then the revelation belongs to the spirit. It is. He's the revealer of truth. Well, we take that same phraseology, we say it in this way, the providence of God. And then we take it from God and make it about man. And I don't think that's the way to go concerning providence. I think it belongs to God. And as a result of that, when it's explained in scripture, like here in Romans 9, as Paul talks about God's sovereignty and his ability to choose certain courses of actions without consent, without checking with anybody for approval, that he could do that. And within this context, I think you would find evidence of providence. There's some choices are made by God and they're explained in such a way as to help us appreciate didn't have anything to do with the people involved, had everything to do with God. So uh, we begin there in verse number nine for what this, uh, this is what the promise said about the same time next year, I will return to Sarah, shall have a son. 
not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, this is Genesis 25, I believe it is, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. That's not a bad passage against Calvinism right there. Not a bad passage at all. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whom he wills whoever he wills, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, old man? Answer back to God. Will what is molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? And then he continues on with the potter and the clay. And obviously the analogy there about God having power over clay. Well, as you read through that section, you can see there's Jacob and there's Esau, there's Isaac, there's Rebecca, there's Moses, there's Pharaoh, there's choices made by God all the way through. And it's explained some of the choices. Well, God just made them for his purposes to show his power. And I, I, I think that gets lost in the discussion of providence. Something happens and it is immediately about me rather than about God, his will, his purposes, and so forth. At least that's my thoughts. Um, yeah, I, I would agree. And the passage I referenced earlier, I, I think it's as as simple of a statement as you'll find anywhere. Um, when, when Isaac asked Abraham about where is the offering, Abraham's response is God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Um, there is that word provide, uh, you know, Sam in the, in the comment section, like says, I like the pronunciation providence, which really emphasizes that the providing portion of it, but I, this Ab Abraham's understanding here is God will provide himself the lamb. Now, I think that's at least a, an allusion to messianic things, although I don't know that it is necessarily prophetic in that sense, but Abraham understands something who's going to get the lamb. Who, you know, the lamb's going to be caught up in the thicket. Who's going to retrieve it? Abraham and Isaac are. They're going to be the ones that actually get the gift. They're going to get the thing. The thing belongs to them. But God didn't provide the thing for Abraham and Isaac. God provided the thing for God. God needed Abraham and Isaac to have a lamb. So God made sure they had a lamb. And I think that's what you're talking about is providence is not about us. It's about God. Because time and chance happens to everybody. Sun rises on the you know sun rises on the just and the unjust. The rain falls upon the just and the unjust. Pointed unto man wants to die, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian. One one Christian gets better from a disease. One doesn't get better from a disease, and on all that stuff. And so often we we focus on okay, why did God fix this person and not fix me or or, or whatever? 
and we lose aspect, we lose this, God will provide for himself that which we need. Or you know that what we need to that which we need to accomplish His will, mm-hmm. and, and I think we lose sight of that a lot of times when we talk about the topic of providence. Providence is not about us; it's about God. Absolutely. Uh, Valletta asked a question. I think we should we should answer it as best we can, and then we'll we'll return to this list. Uh, so is everything already determined in our life by God? God is all knowing, and He knows what has happened and what will happen to us he knows what choices we will make before we do so am i correct in assuming that everything in our lives is determined by god would you like to take a stab at that or shall i um i mean i can start if you want to i mean Valette, i think we've already addressed it on some level uh, i don't don't think solomon is in error when he says that time and chance happens to us all um now yes god is omniscient he knows the end from the beginning but that doesn't mean he determines the end from the beginning. Knowing something is going to happen is different than determining something is going to happen. Um, If you have children and you know their personalities, you know very often ahead of time, if you leave the cookies on the table, what they're going to do. You know it, but you don't determine it. It's still their free will that determines. My foreknowledge of an event does not necessitate that I shape those events. Uh, I still, the person still has to go through the event for the event to happen. Um, and that, that, that's, that's an oversimplification of the answer, but I believe that's the core of the answer. Um, knowledge does not imply in, in, in intervention into the event to make it happen. Um, time and chance is still a, a real thing within, within the complex system of the, of the world and, and the free moral agency of now 7 billion people. It, just because the mind of God is, you know, you, you may be able to determine that for one child with some high degree of accuracy. God's able to, to know those things about 7 billion people with perfect accuracy. But it's the same principle. You don't determine it, you just know it. So then, yeah, I, I think uh, this is where providence becomes uh, challenging is that you have to hold multiple thoughts in your mind at the same time. And some of them may appear on the surface to contradict, but they don't contradict. There are just things that are true and there are multiple things that are true at the same time. God has to be infinite in order for him to be God. And we have to be free in order for us to be held accountable for our choices. There can be no contradiction between these two things. They both have to be true, and they are. And so God's knowledge, as you said, and I think properly and and correctly, uh, having knowledge of a thing doesn't mean you cause it to happen. Uh, There is an event in the life of David where uh, David is on the run from Saul, and he runs down to a place uh, I want to say it's Keila or something to that effect. Keila, Keila. He he he's there and he's trapped, and uh, Saul hears of it. And Saul, uh, David says to God, "Will Saul come down here?" And uh, God says, "Yes, he will come down." And then David follows up the, with the second question: "Will the men give me up? Will the men of Keila?" Um, where this is, uh, where is that, John? In case somebody wants to read it, first uh, Samuel 23. 
1 Samuel 23, verse number seven. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah. And Saul said, God has given him this interesting too. It's kind of funny. I say funny, but not, not really in a ha-ha way. It's just, just an expression. It's funny though, that Saul would see the event as God blessing him. Hmm. It, it's, it's, and, and that just tells you something about providence. You and I are looking at a thing from two different sides and perspective and both interpreting the event. Uh, one sideline is praying that the field goal is missed. And the other side is praying that the field goal is made. And, and uh, then, then, the, then the kick happens and somebody is sure God bless them. Well, Saul, the Bible says, Saul said, God has given him into my hand. For he has shut himself up by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Key Island to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. He said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Key Island. Without the internet, one wonders how this news was traveling so fast, but they both are hearing things. To destroy the city on my account, will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. I think that just speaks to not just the question we just had, but people's concept of, of providence uh, and of, of their actions in their lives. The great blessing we have is that that event is recorded from heaven's perspective. Mm -hmm. We get insight into something we would never know. Saul would have thought, he, he came, he, we got him. And David escaped. The men would have given. God knew all of that. And yet he didn't cause any of it. And when David found out he was going to, he left and Saul never went. Your thoughts? If you oh, sorry, I was, yeah, I do. Um, just real quick on the, the topic of, of, you know, the word people you often use is the word predestination. And it is a Bible term. But this is one of those times where the very pro process we're going through right now to make sure we're using the terms in the proper way and talking about the same thing. When people talk about predestination, they talk about it from a grand scale, from a, from a macro scale about the foreknowledge of God and so on. But the word predestination is only found in about two or three passages in the New Testament, uh, Ephesians chapter one and uh, Romans chapter eight. And I don't can't think of another one off the top of my head. And look what Romans chapter, Ephesians chapter one says, says about it. Um, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus. That's all it says. 
It doesn't say he predestined us in any other way. There is a very specific application of the text to or about this term of predestination. And I'm not going to take the time to do it, but Romans 8 doesn't really expand it beyond that. It talks that those who are predestined are the elect, those, those who are called according to his purpose and so on. Effectively, the same thing that's said about, uh, about, the, about the, the people here in Ephesians 1. Uh, now, if I had six weeks, I'd take you down a longer study of Romans 8 and Romans 9, and I think we could limit that scope of that even more, more fully. But my point being, not, not to have a specific discussion about these, these passages and so on, because I said that would take us way past our time limit here, but make sure when you're talking about these things, when you, do, you go through the process we're trying to go through here to get this discussion started. Make sure you read exactly what's in the text and you, you have the proper scope of your terms and so on. Predestination is not, again, your, your Tuesday morning at 1030. That, that no, there's no place in scripture that indicates that those kind of things are predetermined by God in any capacity whatsoever. Could he? Sure. Are there certain times where he did? Yes. But we're told specifically when those things happen, um, and so on. So th th that's make sure you're on the right scope when you're having that that particularly um, particular discussion. Uh, I just saw Johnny's question: Does providence, the providence of God, occur for all, not just Christians? I think we just read there in Romans nine, where Pharaoh was included as part of God's providence. Uh, God said, "I raised you up for this purpose," and he was part of God's plan. But remember, when we're reading scripture, that plan is outlined pretty specifically to go to the cross, to reveal the mystery, to fulfill that. That, that is the, the purpose and plans we're reading about in scripture, to uh, the mystery. That, that's what we're reading. So were there people used as part of that process and sometimes providentially uh, by God? Sure. They were not always Jews. I, I think of Cyrus comes to mind. Uh, he's referred to as God's anointed, God's servant. Uh, he raised up the Babylonians. He raised up the Assyrians. He uh, did a lot of things with a lot of people to carry out his purposes. And in the case of Pharaoh, that his name might be known throughout the whole world. Uh, God did that. Can God do that? Yeah, he, he did. Uh, he'll have mercy on whom he'll have mercy. I think I heard you many years ago say that verse doesn't say he saves who he wants to save. He has mercy. I think that's right. Uh, there's a difference there. He's not talking about um, saving people against their will or uh, rejecting people who want to be saved. He's not predetermining salvation. The place of salvation, the person of salvation in Jesus uh, the plan of salvation, all those things are deep predetermined, but whosoever will let him come and God is no respecter of persons insofar as that's concerned. Right. Uh, we're to number eight now. And number eight is simply providence is perhaps. And that comes directly from Philemon 1.15, where uh, if you study that short book, it's an amazing short book uh, full of, of just wonderful statements by Paul about uh, our brother Philemon and our brother Onesimus and uh, this relationship. 
Paul speaks about his knowledge of Onesimus running away from Philemon. And as Paul sends him back, he, he says, well, back up in verse 13, he says, I would have been glad to keep him with me. And uh, the way Paul pleads to Philemon is, is next level stuff. I mean, it's just fantastic. He says he's an old man in prison and uh, he goes through a lot of stuff uh, to get to, Cornel to uh, uh, Philemon's heart. And I think he does. But he says, I would have kept him with me. But the reason I would have kept him was in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But verse 14 is a tender moment with Paul and his friend or his brother. He says, I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. And then he says, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. The Apostle Paul, who had more visions than probably anybody, more revelations, uh, uh, more insight into the mystery, at least given to him directly, and then he to us, uh, didn't know whether or not God was involved in this action. The action of the runaway slave, the action of him meeting Paul, the action of his conversion, and the subsequent action of him being sent back. I don't know why he left you. I don't know. Perhaps he left so you could have him back forever. Perhaps. Uh, when you and I talk about providence, at least as best I can understand, I don't know how any uninspired human can get more certain about providence than perhaps when an inspired apostle couldn't get be more specific than perhaps. And so for me, Providence is perhaps. Just well said, man. Number nine, God hears and answers prayers. He does. He does. The Bible says it, uh, and uh, that settles it. Uh, the evidence in scripture is clear. We can read answered prayers. First uh, Peter 3.12 makes the promise, the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. His ears are open to their prayers. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil. There is nothing we say tonight. There is nothing that I hope to ever say in any conversation on any Bible topic that leads to the conclusion. And that's why Eric doesn't believe in prayer. <laughs> that's just, that's not true. It's not Bible absolutely unequivocally believe the Bible teaches that God hears and answers prayers. That said, unless you have more, I'll move to number 10. Hey, hey I, I have heard, I have heard enough that Jonathan doesn't believe in prayer. So I'm gonna let you, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna let you on that limb all by yourself right now. <laughs> I knew I was saying something wrong or at least it was right in my mind, but it had to be hitting a sister's ears in a way I didn't intend it because she said to me, after I finished listening to you, I stopped praying. 
And I just thought, I don't know what I said, but I can assure <laughs> you this. Uh, that was not the point. So yes, I, yes. that made it onto my list because I wanted people to understand that. That's on my yes. list. If, at, if at the end of the discussion you think I shouldn't pray, you, we, we we did something wrong or, or you heard something wrong. One, one, one of the two. There was a, a break in the communication process, if that's the conclusion. I promise <laughs> you that. Number 10, if you would bring up Proverbs 2, please. Here's number 10. God gives wisdom out of his mouth. God gives wisdom. This chapter is a fantastic chapter. The opening of it is, my son, if you receive my words and treasure my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, well, what would be attending your ears to wisdom? Probably in the first verse, receive my words, treasure up my commandments, making your ear attentive to wisdom, inclining your ear, your heart rather, to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight, raise your voice for understanding. If you seek it like silver and search for it in hidden treasures, then you will understand. Sounds like Ephesians 3, 4, whereby when you read, you may understand. When Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and Find the knowledge of God. Why? Verse number six. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the path of justice and watching over his saints. Then you will understand. What will you understand? Righteousness, justice, and equity. Every good path for wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will go. Whoo. I think Jonathan just referenced Roman eight and used the expression six weeks. Uh, how about six weeks unpacking our adjectives in this section of scripture for what the word of God can do and will provide? the very things that people are often looking for, the questions that they have, the things they want to understand, the stuff they're trying to figure out, their day-to-day -day operations this way or that way, this thing or that thing, this person or that person. What do I do in this situation? What do I do here? What do I do? And what is God? That, listen, likely, likely for every question you have relating to life and godliness God has given an answer in his word already. I say likely, that wouldn't be exactly accurate because Peter says he has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And so you have it and it's in God's word. His word, yeah. his people, his church. Uh, these things is where we get our wisdom and guidance for the day. Yeah, and that, that phrase in verse six, I always use this passage, it's one of my favorite ones, um, when you're studying James chapter one. If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God, it gives to all men liberally. And I've sat in so many Bible classes where people ask the question, hey, how does God give us wisdom? 
and we start un unrolling all of the, the, the answers about we, we get through, through experience, we get it from other people, we get it through prayer, we get it from, and I just want to raise my hand every time and just be the, the annoying person in the classroom. No, th this is the only path. It is the only path scripture ever defines from the way that God provides wisdom. Even in 1 Corinthians 2, you references earlier, I think I saw Charles uh, Abernathy, looks like he's in the room, referenced 1 Corinthians 2, 7 earlier. You know, that which God had planned from eternity never entered into the heart of man. Paul refers to it as a hidden wisdom. And he says, we are now speaking that wisdom in words which the Holy Spirit teaches. Even in the process of inspiration, wisdom about the hidden wisdom of God, his eternal plan, Paul specifically says, comes from the words of the Holy Spirit. The, the, the original source of every ounce of wisdom there is about God comes from the mouth of God. You referenced it earlier. Nobody knows what's in the mind of God until God speaks, until God reveals, which gets us back all the way up to points one and two when you're talking about providence and talking about the will of God and, and talking about what God does and does not do. The 66 books are the totality of the wisdom that God will ever provide about anything he is or anything that he has done, is doing, or will do. That's it. There's nothing we know outside of that 66-book revelation, and that gets you to here, to this point in Proverbs 2, because that's the path. The only way we can receive instruction is through word. I mean, it may be read, it may be heard, it may be whatever, but it's still, it's through word. We communicate and reason in words. Our thoughts are tied to words. It's, it just is. And so that, that's, that's where, we, where we need to go with it. So this is where uh, it dovetails into prayer and where people become um, sideways about prayer and so forth on the subject. Because typically what happens is for every event in my life, I pray. Now, again, this is not a study of prayer, but maybe one is needed. Let me just say that. You talk about a big subject and one that needs studying. Uh, they are so connected. Prayers. But what ends up happening is an event happens in my life and I pray. And then I wait. And then I determine days later, weeks later, months later, by the outcome in the event about which I prayed, whether or not God answered my prayer. If I don't get what I want, he didn't answer. If I do get what I want, then he did answer and, and praise God and so forth and so on. A lot of times people are having issues in their lives and they pray about everything to God. Now, here's the way prayer works, best I can ascertain. Prayer is man revealing his heart to God. He is allowing God, he's letting God know what's on his mind. He is sharing his thoughts, his concerns, his cares, praise, whatever it is, is coming from the heart of man to God. Well, in every conversation, the best way to have conversations is not if only one person does all the talking. Mm -hmm. So what ends up happening in prayer is we talk to God. And I think I just said- I I have found my conversations go the way I want them when I'm the only person talking. I don't <laughs> A lot of people do. <laughs> so what ends up happening is you're having problems in your life, challenges, relational, 
uh, work related, family related, children related, spouse related, your own mind, un, uh, uneasiness and so forth, agitation, irritation, enemies, so forth and so on and on and on the list goes. And, and don't hear me wrong now. Again, I'm not saying don't pray about these things. What I am saying is prayer is part of the process. If we pray every single time about every single thing and the only portion of that prayer is God fix it, question, when does God get to talk? When do you get to hear from God? I'm convinced. Now, again, this is just me. This is just me. I'm convinced if you could get a personal audience with God, that is you in spirit, caught up to glory and behold his glory and have an open dialogue with him. And in that setting, you could express to him the cares of your mind and ask him to answer. Mm -hmm. I am convinced as far as I know, he wouldn't say to you anything that he hasn't already said in his word. Because God doesn't, God doesn't miss it. God doesn't say, you know, I didn't think about that. God didn't say, I didn't see that. You know, when I wrote that to John and I had him pin that, I didn't have in mind that, you know, I never saw the angle of how this particular nuance, wow, you know, I'm going to, you know, the Holy Spirit is not going to recant. The Holy Spirit didn't miss it. And so if God gets a chance to give his wisdom, oh, we will get understanding and we will get insight and we will get wisdom from the divine. And we will know which way to go and what to do and how to fix relationships and how to be at peace and how to, to, to share and care and love. And we will have it because God will tell us and Jesus has shown us. Now, I'm not telling you don't pray. So if you heard in that, don't pray. That's not, that's not at all what I said. I'm saying Proverbs 2 says, God gives wisdom out of his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. And if that's what you're seeking and that from God, you've got to open up his book and let him talk to you. Um, and, you know, well, I have thoughts. If I say them, first of all, we'll run long. But secondly, it might even add to the, hey, what you're hearing is bump right. But, you know, there, there is, keep this on the narrow, narrow strip, narrow strip. First Peter still says, cast all your care upon him because he cares for you. That's God right. wants to hear every single thing on your heart. And you should pray everything that's on your heart because God is a sovereign God. I only know of about one prayer that he says that you should not pray. And that's the, if you see a man sin a sin unto death, I, I, I say, I, I don't say that you should pray for that. If a man is unrepentant and will not repent, do not pray for that man's forgiveness. Okay. You can pray that, that he might get the time, you might have the space and all of those things. But first John says, if you see a man sin a sin unto death, don't pray for that. That's the only one I know of. Anything else, pray for it. Um, but um there are times in scripture, I think of Joshua in the case of the, the ballad, bat, battle at AI. Joshua, they lose the battle at AI or I, depending on how you want to say it. What's Joshua do? Joshua does what everybody else would do. He falls on his knees and begins to pray. 
And effectively, that the, the, the short answer, the summary of what God says to Joshua is stop, get up, and go get the sin out of the camp. The reason he says that is because he already told them, if you don't sin, you'll win every battle. When you start sinning, you'll lose the battle. Joshua, you should have been able to figure this out. I already told you what was going to happen. If you lost the battle, something's wrong. Go fix it. And sometimes we, we pray for things like that. You're having trouble in your marriage. Okay, absolutely. You, you hear me say this right, Eric? Mm -hmm. You should have trouble in your marriage. You should pray about what's going on in your marriage. But if you're not, if you're not following the golden rule in your marriage, no amount of prayer is going to fix your marriage. Okay, th that's the point. Pray about yep. it. Absolutely pray about it. But the answer to, I mean, the golden rule is an oversimplification of it. But as I say sometimes in sermons, the golden rule works every time it's tried, and it only takes one person to make it work. You don't need the other person's consent to make the golden rule work. And if you apply that in your marriage, it will make your marriage better. Okay. The answer point is he's already given you the answer. Pray about it. Yes. But don't expect him to circumvent the laws he's already put in place. He's already told you how to have a successful home. Pray about it. Absolutely pray about it. But the answer to that prayer has already been given. So it's, 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 go ahead. No, that's absolutely right. And 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 that's why the subject of prayer is worthy of study unto itself. Uh, prayer, biblically speaking, is in conjunction with obedience to the Lord, not in contradistinction to it. You, you don't pray. Uh, I think it's Proverbs. Oh, man, I want to say 1925. He who turns his ear away from the law, even his prayer shall be an abomination. Uh, it's, it's not in opposition to the law. You can't reject God's word and pray uh, to God while not doing what he says. Uh, one of the examples I use is similar to Joshua. It's Matthew 5 and it's Matthew 18, where a brother has ought with a brother or fought with a brother. Uh, if you want to pray while you go, great. Pray on your way. Yep. Uh, but don't pray and refuse to go. When the Bible says go to him and him alone, the Bible says leave your gift and go be reconciled to your brother. Now you're not going to go. You're just going to pray. You are misusing prayer now. It's, the, it's, it's not a reflection on the efficacy of prayer. It's an no. indictment of our misuse of prayer. Uh, prayer is a Bible doctrine, which means the truths about prayer are governed by scripture. Uh, it's almost as if somehow we've removed prayer from the text of the Bible. And because we can talk to God anytime and every time we want to, and we don't necessarily have to have a Bible open to do it, we almost move it out of scripture as if it's not a Bible doctrine. It is flat out controlled by scripture. You, you can't misuse prayer in a non-biblical way and then say, I'm just going to pray about it. Well, not as scripture said, do something else about it. <laughs> so, well, we can read heard, heard a um, country preacher say one time, something along the lines of, you can't sow wild oats and then pray for crop failure, something like that. It, it's, mm. you, God's not going to be mocked. He's already, he's already told you how these things work. Prayer is not going to overturn the plan of God, the system of God. 
It just not. I, I think prayer is a worthy study unto itself. And I think we would have to do the exact same thing with prayer that we're doing here with Providence. And that is have a list of things that the Bible teaches on the subject to help us. I don't have that list in front of me, but I think it would be a good list to have. Uh, we, it's 804. What point are we on? Uh, we are on number 11 now. 11 oh, we, we, we can at least get 11 and 12 in. We can at least get 11 and 12. 11 of 12. So you know here's happen, number 11. You know what happens when you do this kind of study, though? What? We just went through all 12 pre-defining pre, pre, pre the terms for the discussion. Next time we come back together in a couple of weeks, we're going to have an entirely different audience. <laughs> and, and, but go and ahead. With the list. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna forward the list to Jonathan in case he, he wants to put it up or make it available somewhere. I'll make it a PowerPoint slide for the next class. That'll work. That'll All work. right. Let me give you number 11. It is this. Uh we are not asked by God to figure out some specific purpose for our lives. Uh Acts 17 27, the apostle Paul says. After saying in verse 26 that he made from one man every nation of mankind live on all the face of the earth, having determined before the bounds of their habitations, he says in verse 27 that they should seek the Lord and feel after him or grope after him, though he be not far from every one of us. At least for me, if there is and since there is a purpose to our existence I know some people will say it's to glorify God, and I don't mind that at all, but glorifying God only can come after you find God. And so I'm going to say the purpose of life is summed up in verse 27, that they should seek the Lord and find him. That's it. Uh, if you want a purpose for life, seek God, find him, learn him, live like him glorify him and you can go on and on down the list after that but beyond that mm -hmm. he's not asked us to figure out quote unquote our purpose i know a lot of people love to do this sort of thing and entertain themselves with it but if number one and number two is true you know there's 66 books and i can't know his mind unless they reveal it good luck figuring out some purpose he hasn't told you yeah, my name is not. In the, well, actually, my name is in the Bible, but not for me. I mean, it's another character, but my, my name is not in the Bible. And, and you know, I, I, we lose sometimes we have like a, I think people call it either the Joseph syndrome or the Abraham syndrome, something of that nature, where you read the Bible, putting, putting yourself in the position of Abraham. We're not. The only reason the only reason Abraham is Abraham is because God said, Abraham or Abram, get out of your country. Uh, we don't have that. And so the, the things you listed, our, our calling is not to specific courses of life. Our calling is to be like him, to be transformed, to be saved and so forth. All, all the things that are in scripture. And yet and when you try to get, when you try to get down to that pinpoint specificity, thinking that one path will please God and one path will not please God. Um, that doesn't, you're not going to find help from that in scripture at all, other than, other than principled help. Last one, number 12. Uh, scripture gives us all things that pertain to life and godliness, 2 Peter 1, 2, and 3. Uh, and I just think that's that's just important to note. It's, 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 it's all sufficient. It will fully equip to every good work. And it has within it all we need for life and godliness.
that's my list. And uh, someone asked yeah. another question. I'm not sure if you ever gave the passage. You referenced it. But the question was, what was the passage for not praying? What scripture was that? Um, yep. Um, hold on. Give me just a second. Let me. I was scrolling back through here trying to catch some of these things. First of all, let's go way back because I don't think we got this one from Yvonne. I say way back. It was 751. Uh, Yvonne asked, um, would Esther 414 fall in line with tonight's discussion? We didn't get to Esther or to Joseph, and we will uh, maybe look at look at some of those specific passages. But I, I would I would think it would because Mordecai effectively said the same thing that Paul says. For who knows? Yeah. Perhaps who, who you know knows? the game. Yeah, yeah. perhaps. Yeah. But clearly, um, we would conclude God was working through Esther, and His providence is in the book of Esther, though His name not mentioned. We would certainly conclude that looking backward which is one of the things we would say about Providence. I would think that maybe on, when we look backwards, we can see something, but uh, okay. certainly within the dynamic, perhaps, and who knows is the best answer anybody can give. Yeah. Uh, another one real quick here from Deborah. She says, I, I, pr I pray that he will be humbled. Uh, should I leave that alone? I don't know who the he is. I don't know where were we in that session. <clears throat> um, but, oh, Probably when I was mentioning First John five, the one the, the man who sends a sin not unto or sends a sin unto death. Hmm. Pray that he would be humble. Um, I, yeah, yeah. In fact, let's just go over there because I think there's another question about that just a, in just a second. Um, uh, well, Valletta, let me get to Valletta's real quick because I've got that pulled up, and then we'll go back to First John five. Uh, Valletta, the, the passage is in J Joshua seven. Um, the the defeat of AI or at, at AI is the first section of the text there, one through nine. Um, and then, um, well, actually, uh, six is where Joshua begins the prayer uh, that we've, you know, we've fallen down. Uh, why have you brought this over the people to destroy us? Would that we have been content and so on. And, you know, and what, 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 what will you do for your great name once we're destroyed and so on? And God's response is, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned and transgressed the commandment that I've given. And they have taken the devoted things and stolen them, put them in their belongings. Therefore, they cannot stand and so on. Uh, and so he says, again, get up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate us tomorrow and, and so on. So, um, you know, that, that's that's the passage I was referencing. Um, and even there, God doesn't reject the prayer that's given. It, even there, God still listens to the prayer and then tells and tells tells Joshua what needs to be done. And actually the specific, the specifics of how to handle the consecration of the people are provided there to Joshua. So there is an answer that is provided, but the point being, when you have the fullness of revelation, sometimes we end up in sin. We do things that are, are just a violation of scripture. Then all of our life falls apart. And then we pray, we, we fall down and pray to God as if God helped me here. I don't know what to do. And since God doesn't speak to us anymore, it, you know, we, we don't get this dialogue that Eric was talking about. Pray the prayer. Hey, God, I messed up. I need help. I need to figure out what to do. But as Eric saying earlier, at that point, let God talk. Let God talk. And the way you let him talk is you go back to his word and you 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 stare, you stare and behold him as in a glass face to face and be transformed from glory into glory. The prayer is prayer is not a shortcut to sort not a short circuit to the reaping and sowing dynamic that the God puts in scripture. You've got to you gotta lay down, you gotta go back and pray again. Um or you got to go back and, 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 and apply the scripture again. Um, let me scroll down through here. 
uh, Lay asked, please repeat the, the, the type of prayer God says not to pray about. Um, First John 5, what's that, Eric? Verse 16. 16. Okay. Um, oops, let me scroll back. Went too far on that one. Um, right after he says, this is the confidence that we have in him. If we pray anything according to his will, we know that we, we know he hear, uh, hears us and we have the request. We ask him if we pray anything according to his will. I'm going to guess we'll come back to that passage at some point in these discussions. Uh, hard not to, because prayer and providence go right together. But then verse 16, if anyone sees a brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Um, lots of lots of discussions about what that is and so on. My simplistic definition of it is the sin that does not lead to death is the sin that the man acknowledges that he has. Go back to chapter one. If we say we have no sin, we're a liar and the truth is not in us. The man who says his sin is not actually sin, who will not repent, who denies the difference between Saul and David when they're confronted, one by Samuel and one by Nathan. One denies the sin, one accepts the sin and repents. That, that's maybe that'd be an oversimplification of the process, but that's what that that's what my understanding in, in, on base terms would be. There's a sin that does not lead to death. For, when a Christian who's walking in the light sins, that sin does not lead to death because he is walking in the light and willing to repent of it. Um, and if you are no longer in the light and you're and you're sinning and, and unwilling to repent of it, John says, I do not say that one should pray for that. Now he doesn't, and that if the English translation is there, if I'm reading this right, right, Eric, he doesn't actually forbid the offering of the prayer. It's not as if you pray for that prayer, because sometimes we don't know if somebody's going to be willing to repent or not. Um, actually, what he says is sort of just the, the other side. There's no obligation to pray for that prayer, um, you know, to pray that prayer. And for the individual, in verse number 16, John says, he will ask and God will forgive him. Um, and then verse, six, verse seven, uh, 16 says, I do not say that one should pray for that prayer. So he, may, he may actually be referring to the individual who is living in sin, who should not then pray for his own forgiveness while living in sin. That's also a possible construction of the passage, but that's the passage I was referencing. And that's the only time I know of that that kind of language is used in scripture. Um, scrolling down, have anything else, Eric? Do you see anything? I, I did not. Uh, I think that was it with, from Lay, and I think somebody else actually had put that in or it's a passage or something like that. Uh, I would just quickly add with regards to what you said concerning praying to God is that you and I have to really consider what we're asking God to do. I mean, I, I think sometimes, again, people don't follow that all the way through. You're asking God to do what? Now, here is a person who will not repent. What would you have God to do? Because God can't accept sin. God can't be dismissive of it. And so are you asking God to go against his character? Are you asking God to go against his revelation? Are you asking God to somehow fix a person who is free to choose and is presently choosing not to repent? I think you kind of got to walk yourself all the way through. What exactly are you asking God 
to do. And I think this is where sometimes prayers are just, um, the process of prayer is easy. Understanding it, I think, is far more challenging and difficult. And uh, it's a subject that we probably need to spend some time talking about as well as we did Providence tonight. It could be the case that Jonathan's uh, grandson has uh, successfully breached the palace walls and is now storming the castle. I don't know. No, I got the door locked. I got the door locked. If we hear her crying in just a second, that's what the problem is. Well, um, it's time to shut it down, and I'm fine with that. Yeah, just, just real quick. Um, Shirley asked, is so a decision made 20 years ago ends up having a good purpose today? Is, 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 is not God working in our lives? Um, I, that probably goes back to something we said probably 10 minutes or so ago, but, yeah. um, I, again, the word perhaps, and I, th I think that's all we're saying here is perhaps when you speak definitively about things, you're saying more than you can know, more than I can know, more than anybody can know. Uh, and it, my default position for those things, Shirley, and Eric, can you put comment on this as, as needed? My default position is to give God credit for every good thing that happens. You 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 get you get sick and you get and you and you get you get better after you pray about it. Thank God for healing you. But understand, you don't actually know because when you think you know, and then it goes the other direction, you pray and you don't get the healing. See, there, that's where the the disconnect comes, and you can end up hurting your faith. I I, I wholly agree. And as we did talk about tonight, there are other possibilities of even good happening. Yeah. You know, Onesimus um, became a Christian. Well, that's certainly good. And Paul said, perhaps. I don't know. Uh, and so the, there's other, you know, you, you sow good 20 years ago and you reap good 20 years later. Well, we give God credit, certainly so, because God is the God of, of heaven and he's sovereign and his will. And, and so as, yeah, I don't have any problem praising and giving thanks to God for everything. Paul says in everything, give thanks. I woke up this morning. Thank God. Um, yeah. I have a chance to walk still. Thank God. I have a chance to drive a car. Thank God. Sun came up. Thank you, Lord. Uh, but when I get into explanations about events that happened in my life, somebody hit me uh the the water overflowed i don't i don't try to figure out god's actions in the event i thank god i was able to go through the event yeah but, uh, yeah. and some i think we've got most of the questions covered it is late and we got to get to the prayer list here uh, some of these last questions are actually why we had the session tonight hmm. dealing with the 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 prerequisites of this study some of the questions y'all are asking that's that's the next time we get back together, and we'll we'll have to review this list quickly as we can, bring everybody back up to speed. But you got to start proper the proper framework for the biblical discussion, and keep everything within that proper framework. So don't try to if you re-listen to this lesson, don't try to figure out all the ramifications of the twelve points. The way to approach this lesson is look at each point individually, and ascertain. Are each one of those 12 statements biblical? And if each one of those 12 statements are biblical, what you have are 12 guidelines, guideposts, to framing the discussion on providence properly so that then when you actually get into the mechanism of, okay, this is happening in my life. How do I attribute it to God? How do I understand the event and all that? 
you have some parameters built by God that, that you can use to help you try to understand and interpret the events of your life. Because as we've said several times, the specific events of your life are not in Scripture. There's no way on earth you can take Tuesday morning at 1030 and say, I know that God did X, Y, or Z, or did nothing. I don't know. So something happened. How do I interpret it? How do I apply it? How do I learn from it? The only way you can do that is to have the proper biblical framework before you begin to ask the specific questions. And Eric's, I think what Eric did in leading this tonight is great because so often we get involved with the, the event and trying to interpret the event before we have settled the biblical issues behind the event. And so that's the purpose of tonight's study is to get the biblical issues settled so that we then can apply it to the events that are in our lives. Well said.